Als Gregor Samsa eines Morgens aus unruhigen Träumen erwachte, fand er sich in seinem Bett zu einem ungeheuren Ungeziefer verwandelt. Er lag auf seinem panzerartig hartem Rücken und sah, wenn er den Kopf ein wenig hob, seinen gewölbten, braunen und von bogenförmigen Versteifungen geteilten Bauch, auf dessen Höhe sich die Bettdecke zum gänzlichen Niedergleiten bereit kaum noch erhalten konnte. Seine vielen, im Vergleich zu seinem sonstigen Umfang kläglich dünnen Beine, flimmerten ihn helflos vor den Augen. When Gregor Samsa awoke one morning from restless dreams, he found himself transformed into an unsettling uncreature. He was lying on his hardened, shell-like back and saw when he elevated his head just slightly his bloated, brown and somehow stiff, multi-segmented abdomen, which his blanket barely still clung on to, his many and, at least compared to their usual appearance, pitifully scrawny legs, oscillated helplessly before his eyes. Hello, I'm Alicia Brogi. And I'm Erica Lombard. We're literary scholars. And this is Literate, the podcast where we go through the New York Public Library's 1995 list of the books of the century. Each episode, we read one of these books, talk about what it means and why it matters, and then try to work out whether it really is one of the books of the century. This time, we read Franz Kafka's The Metamorphosis. We also talk to two experts on Kafka, Mark Harmon and Carolyn Dutlinger. The voice you heard at the start of the episode belongs to Franziska Kult, who's a research fellow at the University of York in the UK. She generously agreed to read the opening lines of Die Verwandlung, The Metamorphosis, in the original German, and then provide her own translation on the fly, which was so fantastic. Thank you so much, Franziska. Right, let's get into it. I'm going to start off with a brief introduction to Franz Kafka and The Metamorphosis. And I'll tell you a little bit about the book. Then we'll hear from the experts and have a conversation about it. Erica, tell me about Kafka. So, Alicia, Franz Kafka was born on the 3rd of July, 1883, in Prague, Bohemia, which is now the Czech Republic, into an upper-middle-class German-speaking Jewish family. He was the eldest of six children, only four of whom survived infancy. Mm, that's devastating. And all three of his sisters died during the Holocaust in the early 1940s. Oh my gosh. It is pretty devastating. But let's rewind back to his childhood. So after doing well at school, he went on to study law at the German Charles Ferdinand University in Prague, graduating in 1906 as a doctor of law. And it was at university that he met Max Brot, who would become a close friend and central to his literary legacy. 
After this, he worked in insurance firms, apparently without passion, but well enough to be promoted. (laughs) Writing in the evenings and in his spare time. Okay, so much has been made of his relationship with his father, Hermann Kafka, a businessman who has been described as selfish and tyrannical, Hmm. to say the least. Kafka complained in his letters about his father's overbearing nature and its effect on him. Nonetheless, he lived close to his family for most of his life, and as far as I can tell, he only moved out on his own at the age of 31. He suffered from a range of health issues, some of which may have been uh, more psychological than, than others, but he contracted tuberculosis in 1917. His condition worsened in the early 1920s, and he retired from his job in 1922 due to ill health. And eventually, he died of TB on the 3rd of June, 1924, aged 40. That's exactly a month before his 41st birthday. Hmm. At the time of his death, he was virtually unknown as a writer. Only a couple of short story collections and a few individual stories had been published during his lifetime. And although he had instructed his friend Max Brot to burn all his unfinished and unpublished writings, Brot refused and instead began publishing his work. It's thanks to him that Kafka's novels and collected writings were published, and that he became one of the most influential writers of the 20th century. Okay, but now let's shift to the metamorphosis, or die Verwandlung. He wrote the story in 1912, but it took several years of kind of interruptions of various sorts before it was first published in the October 1915 issue of Die Weissenblätter, a journal of expressionist literature. Later that year, in December 1915, it was published as a thin book by Kurt Wolf in Leipzig. It's been translated into multiple languages, and the issue of translation is one that I'm sure will come up again and again in our conversation. Of course, what you want to know the most, Alicia, is what did Kafka think about cats? (laughs) Naturally, or should I say natürlich. Tragically, I found no evidence that (gasps) Kafka was a cat person. Interesting. In fact, it appears that he was a dog person. (gasps) He wrote a whole short story from a dog's point of view called Investigations of a Dog. Mm. And there is a photograph of him patting what seems to be a German shepherd, (laughs) quite lovingly. In Investigations of a Dog, he wrote the line, All knowledge, the totality of all questions and answers, is contained in the dog. (laughs) But... On the feline front, <laughs> there is a book called The Meowmorphosis, <laughs> in which Gregor Samsa is turned into an adorable kitten. Penguin Random House describes it as, quote, a bold, startling, and fuzzy-wuzzy new edition of Franz Kafka's <laughs> classic nightmare tale. It's like the same people who did um, Pride and Prejudice and Zombies. And another cat fact is that for decades, about two-thirds of Kafka's letters and papers were kept in a Tel Aviv apartment inhabited by one of Max Brod's heirs and overrun by between 40 and 100 cats. Wow. So Kafka's legacy was for many years entrusted (laughs) to the care of a cat lady. But enough about cats. Elisha, what's the metamorphosis about? Gregor Samsa wakes up one morning to find himself transformed into the shape of an insect. While adjusting to his new body, he misses the train to his work, where he is a traveling salesman. This prompts the chief clerk to visit his family's apartment, checking in on the derelict employee. 
Since Gregor's income has been paying off his father's debts and supporting the family, the threat posed by the chief clerk's presence gets him out the door. But it turns out that neither the chief clerk nor his family take too kindly to this new insect form. His superior (laughs) flees, and Gregor never works again. Instead, he is sequestered to one room in the apartment, hidden away as a family secret. Time passes. His parents and sister make ends meet well enough without his support. Eventually, they even let it be known that life would be better without the giant bug in the room. Gregor dies the day after this is made clear, and the family's lives go on. Over the course of the story, Gregor loses his significance within the family and within society. The story is bleak, but not without humor, especially as his animal and human selves collide. So this is super short by way of plot summary, because plot isn't really what this book's about. And it's in our conversations with others and with each other that we explore those other facets. So I'm going to stop right here. We're going to kick things off with an extended reflection about the metamorphosis from Mark Harmon. He's Professor Emeritus of English and German at Elizabethtown College in Pennsylvania and is an award-winning translator of Kafka. He's currently working on an exciting new project called The Annotated Kafka, and we are privileged to have had the opportunity to hear from him. The Metamorphosis certainly deserves its place on the New York Public Library list of literary landmarks. Of course, when compared to such large tomes on the list as Man's Magic Mountain and Joyce's Ulysses, Kafka's story may seem rather slim, but a masterpiece does not have to be long, nor need it be a novel. Kafka initially envisaged the metamorphosis, or the transformation, as I prefer to call it for reasons to which I shall return, as a small story, kleine Geschichte. The story's present status as the classic modern novella is due both to its universal appeal and to its productive impact on significant writers from different cultures such as Borges, Kurtzé, Sebald, Philip Roth, and García Márquez. Márquez even stated repeatedly that the effect of reading the first page of the transformation was so strong that it made him decide on the spot to become a writer. What took his breath away and almost made him fall out of bed in amazement, well, perhaps some exaggeration there, Uh, was, as he put it, the imperturbable tone, quote, of the story. The even keel prose style in which Kafka describes the initial unheard of event and its consequences reminded him of the straight-faced manner in which his grandmother told the most improbable tales. Although the novella opens on a fantastical note, the story is told in a sober style that contrasts with the startling transformation of a man into a bug depicted as Gregor Samsa awakens to find himself transformed. But the ever so meticulous Kafka leaves the precise species of insect uh, vague. He reinforces the significance of his title, Die Verwandlung, by using transformed, verwandelt, as a verb in the first sentence. The story about poor Gregor, as as Kafka called him, would, however, not be so emotionally affecting if it continued to be told in that fantastical vein. Instead, Kafka, or rather the impersonal narrator who often merges his voice with Gregor's, sometimes even within the same sentence, evokes the inner and outer 
consequences of that untoward event in a narrative that is so painstakingly precise that we can easily picture, for instance, the exact layout of the Samza family apartment. Any translator of the story faces dilemmas, including most significantly how to render the title. The choices that a translators make can affect how the reader experiences and uh, responds to the story. Edwin and William Muir, the highly talented first English language Kafka translators, chose to render the title, again, Die Verwandlung, a word whose full resonance, suggestive of fairy tales, cannot be captured in English as the metamorphosis. And versions of that title have established themselves in many, though not all, world languages. Spanish-speaking readers, for instance, know the story as La Transformación. I, like other uh, previous translators, prefer the transformation, which for one thing is a plainer title than the metamorphosis, and therefore it seems to me fits in better with Kafka's seemingly simple and unadorned prose style. Besides, Kafka could easily have called his bug story Die Metamorphose. As a pupil in secondary school, he had translated sections of Ovid's Metamorphosis from Latin to German in a kind of school class project or just two students together. Instead, he chose to entitle it Die Verwandlung, a term that was in fact significant to him both as a man while writing the story he described in a letter to his future fiancé, Felix Bauer, his own transformation as a child into what he calls the ape of my parents, both as a man and as an artist. In the famous opening sentence of the story, the narrator calls this new Gregor an ungeheures ungeziefer. The sound of those unfortunately untranslatable double ums evokes the horrendous nature of the unheard of event that has befallen the unfortunate Gregor. Both words have multiple meanings, always a challenge for translators who have offered a variety of renderings, most of them quite plausible. The adjective ungeheuer can mean monstrous, but it is also used colloquially in the adulterated everyday uh, sense of the English word terrible. It can also refer to size and could be translated as huge or enormous. Ungeziefer is equally, if not more, challenging. While it can mean vermin, in German the term is used primarily of small creatures and especially insects. In a letter to his publisher, Kurt Wolf, Kafka himself called Gregor an insect. Previous translators of the story have tried a variety of options, including monstrous vermin, monstrous insect, some sort of monstrous insect, and less happily, monstrous cockroach which doesn't seem to me to work quite so well because Kafka is intentionally vague. I haven't yet decided what compromise to make myself. I'm still mulling over options. The transformation is a story that both invites and resists interpretation. It sucks us into a process that can easily end in what a minor character in the trial calls the commentator's despair. I tend to favor an approach that focuses more on the how rather than the why, while also appreciating the dominant way of approaching this story by continually asking questions. The answers are never as straightforward as they may initially seem. Take one of the first that may come to mind. Is Gregor's transformation real, at least insofar as fiction can ever be real, or is it a figment of the imagination? Well, on the very first page, we learn that it was 
not a dream, quote, it was not a dream, es war kein Traum. But who says that phrase about the transformation not being a dream? Is it the impersonal narrator or the man bug? That is not so easy to determine since the narrative continually shifts back and forth between the flat voice of the narrator and Gregor's unspoken uh, thoughts. And this switch in the narrative can happen even within a single sentence. Incidentally, the humor of the story arises out of the discrepancy between the unruffled reaction of Gregor, who still thinks he can go to work, and the enormity of what happens. My point here, other than to note the complexity of Kafka's deceptively simple prose style, is that an exclusive focus on interpretation can lead one to ignore not only subtleties, such as those barely perceptible changes in the narrative voice, but also basic structuring elements in the story. For instance, the repeated references to the number three, the three Samsas, the three lodgers, the three doors to Gregor's room, and so on. One of the finest commentators on the story, to my mind, is Vladimir Nabokov, precisely because he favors close observation of how the text is structured over speculative interpretation about what it means. As is characteristic of Kafka, the first seed of Gregor's transformation was planted in a fragmentary early story, Wedding Preparations in the Country, in which the hero Rabban, a partial namesake of both Samsa and Kafka, the two A's there in all three of them, imagines splitting himself in two, with one persona venturing abroad and making arrangements for his wedding, while his other persona stays in bed, transformed into a bug. More such seeds can be found in Kafka's literary workshop, the seminal notebooks, in which he wrote a wide array of diary-like entries, story fragments, and many of his stories. Among them, a reflection on his, his increasing estrangement from his body. Quote, how far from me are the muscles on my arm? End quote. The, and then the image he finds to describe his dejection at not being able to write is being, quote, fit for the dustbin, end quote. Anticipates, and spoiler alert here, Gregor Samza's ultimate fate. And yet, and this is the greatest miracle in Kafka's achievement, we need know none of this to appreciate this great literary masterpiece, which exists on its own terms as an autonomous work of art. Wow, that was a wonderful reflection from Mark. And now I'm just dying to know. Erica, what did you think of The Metamorphosis? What did I think of The Metamorphosis? This wasn't my first time reading it. But it's been a long time since I did. I was struck once again by the contrast between the kind of narrative voice in the story and what's going on. I think the moments where I was the most kind of like, hmm, about it was when Gregor was experiencing his body doing a thing or like himself doing a thing and saying, oh, you know, this thing is happening. And there's this kind of impassive recording of mm. details. There's a kind of a cataloging of events and experiences without necessarily 
there being feeling attached to them or mm. a, a strong kind of emphasis on, on feelings. He starts becoming more and more sort of like buggy, insect-like or whatever the word ungetzefer is supposed to mean. And yet he's like, oh, I sort of, you know, notice the thing about myself. And he, he, he loses the sense of like what matters or why these things might matter. In a way, he almost transcends mm. the kind of bourgeois concerns of his family by getting down to the level of the floor, you know? Yeah, yeah. One thing I'm noticing as a recurring theme is you really productively bring our attention to embodiment or disembodiment across these conversations. <laughs> and, and what's so fascinating then in this conversation to me is some kind of strange ambiguity where it's a story all about embodiment and yet mm. the central character sort of has this very self-conscious and almost like somewhat disembodied relation to his embodiment and his body. No, just on that the first page where he's describing, you know, how his chest is now, the, the kind of dome-shaped brown body banded with reinforcing arches. This is my version, which is uh, translated by Richard Stokes. But yeah, it's it's about the body, but the way it's described is just very precise and kind of cataloging, like this is what it is. It's not embodied prose, I would say. Yeah, and it was interesting to me how the main character seemed to keep like a very human self-conception, although his body actually, or perhaps not actually, was transformed into an animal. And so that sort of dissonance between his self-perception and then mm -hmm. at times he does take on the insect's desires and interests, but it doesn't remain constant. He wants certain food and then he ends up starving to death, or at least he dies very skinny. Mm. So his desires don't play that prominent role of connecting the body and the self-conception, just like you pointed out, mm. in, a, in a consistent way. One of the difficulties is that so many people want to read his work autobiographically or biographically. Mm. They want to give a Freudian reading of what he's doing and read this in terms of like Kafka reckoning with things in himself or in his psyche. And I feel like an instinctive resistance to that way of doing things, mm. to explain things away by saying, oh, he was just, you know, working out his daddy issues. And yet this is, it, it becomes harder to, <laughs> to do that when you think about his own relationship with his body I don't want to explain things away by saying it's all just this kind of psychological meditation on something. But at the same time, he did deal with what people might call kind of hypochondriac anxieties about his body, the way he seemed to experience his body. As Mark Harmon said to us, it was at a slight sort of remove and he this seems to correlate with that tendency within his life. And later, of course, when he got tuberculosis, then it's quite literally his body becoming a prison for him. But in the story, which was published before he contracted TB, there's still this experience of a body that is other, but that is still carceral in some way, you know, incarcerating him. Yeah. 
So two of the most interesting bits of criticism that I read, one was about the sort of psychosomatic aspect, but not as much about the autobiographical, or it resisted making those connections in a useful way. Oh, cool. Yeah. And this is in the really fabulous Norton Critical Edition of The Metamorphosis, which basically people should read. I love a Norton (laughs) Critical Edition. Yeah. And here, Walter H. Sokol, he writes on Kafka's Metamorphosis, Rebellion and Punishment. And some of the interesting points that he made were in line with what you were saying. He was talking about the comic discrepancy, I'm quoting him here, between the actual situation and Gregor's rationalizations of them. But he he goes mm-hmm. a little farther than than what we've been saying specifically to note how when he when Gregor first turns into a bug, he's not really worrying about that, but he's thinking about how much he hates the people at work. And, and th- <laughs> this is a discrepancy yeah. that Sokol points out. But then he says... That Gregor has these retributive desires. Uh, He wants to get back Mm -hmm. at his boss. He imagines, you know, what if this happened to his boss? And he's so sort of resentful of his power, his perceived powerlessness and perhaps real powerlessness that then when he turns into a bug, Sokol describes this really interesting disjuncture between how Gregor feels that he's approaching the chief clerk who comes to check on him with gestures of friendliness and wanting to resolve the issue. That's his conscious intention. But his embodied act is perceived as malicious and monstrous and grotesque, that there is a dissonance there that's sustained in a comedic way. And I think that connects with Mm. what you were describing. So I read one translation of this book. I read the um, Hesperus publication from 2002, Translated by Richard Stokes, just because that's the one that I own. What versions did you read? I really only read the Oxford World's Classics version, translated by Joyce Crick. And then I just glanced at a few pages in the translation by Susan Bernofsky. Yeah, I mean, I just wonder what effect the different translations have on our experience of the text. Yeah. Because Kafka is so very translated right? And this kind of question, even as Mark Harmon said, the question of how that word in the first sentence gets translated, is it vermin? Is it monstrous vermin? Is it cockroach? Is it insect? What is it? Not to mention the title itself. Absolutely. Mine is called just metamorphosis. And yours? They were both called the metamorphosis. The metamorphosis. Okay. So I think because there's so much emphasis placed on the first sentence, you know that a translator's got to get this one right, or at least their whole ethos or approach is going to be summed up in the first sentence. So I say that we should read the first sentences out. Okay. Do you want to start with your Oxford World Classics Joyce Crick version? Yeah. So this is The Metamorphosis and Other Stories. As Gregor Samso woke one morning from uneasy dreams, he found himself transformed into some kind of monstrous vermin. Okay, so this is the Richard Stokes version of metamorphosis. No, thee. Hmm. When Gregor Samso woke one morning from uneasy dreams, he found himself transformed in his bed into a monstrous insect. The Susan Bernofsky translation in the Norton Critical Editions aligns a little bit more with yours, I'd say but is longer than either. When Gregor Samsa woke one morning from troubled dreams, he found himself transformed right there in his bed into some sort of monstrous insect. Huh. That's interesting. 
I think there's been a lot of talk and, and there's a lot of questions in my mind about translation. I was wondering, am I getting the true Kafka here? Am I getting the feel of the language in German? Partly because I feel like German lends itself to particular kinds of word order and sentences that creates a kind of a, a feeling, like a sentence might go on for an entire page, certainly an entire paragraph. And what that might do to the reading experience is a bit different. Incidentally, if you go onto the Wikipedia page for the metamorphosis, somebody made an image that shows the different, the layout of the sentence in German and how the words kind of move back on themselves versus what it looks like in English, which really demonstrates the challenge of translating this in a way that conveys the feeling of the sentence in German. Mm. Hm. I guess the question I had about translation is whether the kind of flat affect of the the text is in the original. Is that is that what it feels like in German? I guess it is. You know, what Mark was saying about the repetition of that sound in that first sentence, ungesiefer, unge something or other, adds a, a certain kind of a disgust to it or repulsion or something. And that doesn't necessarily come come through in the English translation. I don't think, because you can't do that repetition of those that particular prefix. Do you want to hear the footnote on that? I do. The German term ungehores, ungeziefe, is famously ambiguous because it does not refer to a particular insect or animal per se, but in a general way to harmful parasitic animals, especially insects and rodents, to bugs, fleas, lice, and beetles. The etymology of ungeziefer shows an early connection to pagan sacrificial animals. Whoa. Or alternatively, to unclean animals unsuited for sacrifice, and to unclean or rotten meat, refuse, and garbage. Note also the parallel hmm. structure of the German terms. Both use the negative prefix un and the generalizing prefix ge, which typically shifts a word from a particular to a collective meaning. Employed literally as well as metaphorically throughout its history, ungeziefer consistently refers to what is disgusting, damaging, or unclean. Ha! Huh. Wow. So th that, that's why people choose vermin rather than insect, because it's got that sense of what is unclean and what is sort of an infestation of, of some sort. Yeah. What do you make of the family in this book? I became more and more resentful of the family <laughs> as, as I read. These people haven't been working and Gregor's been supporting the entire family and paying off his like parents debts and suddenly he's taken out of the equation and they they suddenly you know find all this energy to go out and like do work or be become a seamstress and his sister's blossoming yeah i think that's the word that's in my in my version you know she kind of comes into her own and his, his father sure he he's tired at night and they agonize over what to do about gregor but like Actually, they sort of thrive a little bit. So the feeling I get is like, who've been the parasites the whole time? Yeah, I think that's one of the most interesting, that the dynamic between him and his family and the way that, like his demise in contrast to their sort of fulfillment. And yeah. he'd gone into that line of work and was slaving. He was complaining about it. He, he hated it. He was bitter about it. But he was doing it because of his father's debt. And then it turns out his father's been keeping money yeah. to the side. And it's like, wow, okay, his <laughs> yeah. whole existence was actually meaningless, but 
Also, they were so inconsiderate. They didn't find any of that motivation when he was the only one bearing the burden. No, no, no. They were doing that classic sort of parasitic thing of being like, like beetles stuck on their backs with their legs flailing in the air, you know? Yeah. The description of, of them waiting on the lodges was interesting to me. It sort of struck me as I was reading because in a way, yes, they're being fawning and kind of, you know, like obsequious. They are brought low in some sense, right, from being kind of upper middle class now. They become the servants to these lodges. But at the same time, there's this kind of purpose to their lives and to their life, their domestic lives that almost felt like a bit exultant. I don't know how it struck you. Mm. So here's a, here's a quotation. When the violin began to play, they pricked up their ears, the lodgers, stood up and tiptoed to the door leading into the hall where they stood in a huddle. Their movements must have been heard in the kitchen for his father called out, Do you find the playing unpleasant, gentlemen? It can be stopped at once. <laughs> On the contrary, said the gentleman in the middle, wouldn't the young lady like to join us and play in here where it's much more cozy and comfortable? Mm -hmm. With pleasure, <laughs> cried his father, as if he were the violinist. <laughs> the gentleman went back into the room and waited. Gregor's father soon came in with the music stand, his mother with the music, his sister with the violin. I guess there's a kind of a, they have a kind of a purpose, you know, there's an energy to their movements yeah. that almost feels... It's like alive in a way that they haven't been before. Yeah, I agree. And what came across to me was that emphasis on how the family seems to continually be gaining life and mm. and they're willing to do that at, you know, kind of at all costs, but it doesn't necessarily seem to me to be like the conscious decision. And I guess one of the ironies is that when Gregor was trying to sustain their life, his help was kind of keeping them from that full flourishing. On the other hand, he gave everything for it yeah. and is living in resentment. I mean, what a terrible way to live. Mm. So the dynamics that of the characters at play here, I think are so rich for reflection. <laughs> the dynamics that he is illustrating, that he is staging in this family mm feel very realistic to me. The weird ways in which we tangle ourselves up in our own family histories and relationships, how we get stuck in certain ways of relating to one another. And we accord a certain amount of power to our siblings or our parents. The journey of life is really to kind of disentangle ourselves to some extent and kind of choose the ways in which we are connected to them because Gregor has been caught up in a certain kind of a, a web, not to belabor the vermin point of it all, but he spent so much of his time duty bound doing a job he didn't love. Yeah. And in a, a job where if he misses one morning of work, somebody comes to kind of shout at him or bring him back, like it's quite precarious. Like clearly this isn't a job where he is beloved, you know? Yeah. Well, that is such an interesting point to raise now after we've heard from Mark Harmon about Kafka's own perpetual sense of imprisonment that at certain points in life didn't reflect his actual opportunities and options and condition. Mm. And that's so tragic, I think. I think, you know, Gregor is a tragicomic character. Like mm. he's lived in this 
delusional servitude to others at great expense and walking around, oh, the weight of the world is on my back. I have to do this and I'm resenting everyone in my life. But then it's also like, ah, what options did he have? I mean, we don't see that he had any clear option out. His family didn't see another alternative. They didn't seem to care that he's giving up. They seem repulsively self interested and and that's like the comedy of it all is that yeah and even that his his mother's love like her gentleness is oppressive you know his sister is his prison keeper but also sustaining his life like these, yeah. these vast differences that are held together in their acts you know i think no one misses gregor he is a problem for them to deal with or a monstrous thing that needs to be kind of hidden so he turns into an insect and then he has to be locked away from everyone, even from his mother. His sister has to try and hide his mother because I, I don't know, I had visions of, of Mrs. Bennett saying my poor nerves <laughs> That's perfect. in response to this. Yeah. <laughs> you know, like it, it's too much of a fraught situation. Her nerves are too frayed. She can't see him. The father just disengages. And he just scuttles and, and goes under the chair or hides away. And nobody misses him. They miss the money that he brought in, but then they figure out a way to sort that out anyway. And like, actually, there's this real kind of instrumentalization of one another in this family. That's the thing that's the saddest bit. And even sadder than that is the way that Gregor just accepts yeah. it because he doesn't have a sense of what it might be to be interpersonally relating in a warm and loving way. But maybe that's just what the insect does. Because <laughs> some of the funniest bits are when he like finds himself scuttling out yeah. through the door and he, he sort of experiences his body doing this thing. When he has to reverse, I love those moments. Yeah, and then he's like, oh. How? Like he doesn't know why he feels the need to scuttle around and eat something. It just sort of happens. Those are funny, but I think that there's another angle to it, which is this the sadness of like, he doesn't miss what he didn't know. Hmm. Although he's frequently oriented toward them, wanting to know what they say, wanting to... So he's very concerned about the others in a way that they don't reciprocate. And he's always rationalizing... Because he was responsible for them. He took... He chose to take on responsibility for them. Yeah. Yes. Yeah. That's well put. I, and I think one of the things that makes it so unsavory that they then find the means to support themselves later is that when he was breaking his back <laughs> to support them earlier, they didn't find that motivating to help out. Like they, it never crossed their mind at that point. And no, why, why would it? They didn't need to. Yeah. But that's, then that's it. Like, why doesn't the pain of a family member inspire <laughs> and motivate? You know, and maybe we could read this as, as reflective of Kafka's own experience in his life, but yeah, I don't know. I, I don't think we need to for it to resonate. Yeah, there's clearly autobiographical overlap and life experience informs the way that he writes, but I'd say not in the same way that it does for Jack Kerouac. But it doesn't explain the fullness of the text. The quote with Gregor's sister, where she goes so far as to sort of disown him. And yes, that seems to be connected to the point you're raising about the family not even recognizing each other in a way or being willing to disown, to being willing to turn a blind eye for their own gain. Mm. Here's the start of her quotation. It has to go, Gregor's sister cried out, and it is referring to him. <laughs> mm. That's the only way, father. You just have to try to let go of the notion that this thing is Gregor. 
The real disaster is that we believed this for so long. But how could it be Gregor? If it were Gregor, it would have realized a long time ago that it just isn't possible for human beings to live beside such a creature, and it would have gone away on its own. And it goes on. Complete disowning of him. Makes me sad. It's a funny book. Because there's so much realism about it, mm. the ways in which people interact, the concrete details that are described, it's in the mode of, of realism, and yet there's this kind of crazy premise yeah. that then just unfolds as it would, given these characters in these circumstances. You know that it doesn't feel mythical in the way that like a Borges story does. There's something about the way in which his language works where it is quite sort of pedestrian, mm. you know, and it's quite bureaucratic mm. that goes against that sense of mythicality that the premise suggests. We interviewed Carolyn Dutlinger who is an associate professor of German at the University of Oxford and a fellow of Wadham College. She is one of the directors of the Oxford Kafka Research Center and has published widely on Kafka's writing. Carolyn, we were wondering, to kick things off, when did you first read the work of Franz Kafka? So, yeah, I actually read The Metamorphosis first, and I think I was about... 16 or 17, my best friend who was at a different school, she was reading it for a class and she just lent me the book. And so that's how I first came across Kafka. Awesome. What do you think that people generally get wrong about Kafka? Like, what is the greatest misconception about his writing? So, I mean, you know, what you hear a lot is that people come to Kafka with these grand ideas about, you know, the Kafka-esque, which of course, you know, the fact that there is an adjective that is named after Kafka shows you just how much of an influence he's had in popular culture. But of course, it's also problematic because it suggests that there is a sort of recognizable Kafka brand, which I think is difficult because it sort of reduces Kafka to something that's very coherent and maybe monolithic and recognizable. I mean, personally, what I really hate is when people talk about Kafka and his father, you know, sort of looking at him through this Oedipal lens. And of course, <laughs> The Metamorphosis is a text where you can't get away from the father and the family mm. and so on. But I think you have to be very careful to just read that through the biographical lens. And maybe the other misconception is to see Kafka as someone very dark and somber, um, because then, of course, you ignore all the humor in his work, the playfulness, the kind of openness, which I think is just as much part of it as maybe the claustrophobia and the darkness. That's the, the popular kind of conception. But I think that your, your work counters that quite specifically. Yeah, absolutely. I think, especially when you're trying to introduce Kafka to people who maybe have only read one or two texts or haven't read anything, you obviously have to start with the basics. You have to start with what people think they know about Kafka. And of course, in a sense, it's a great position for us to be in that people, most people, many people will have heard of Kafka and will have some sort of intuitive grasp of 
what he's all about. And of course, a lot of that is also correct. And I think the fact that people feel that way about Kafka also shows how he's still relevant today, maybe much more relevant than other people who wrote a hundred years ago. But I do think what I want to achieve with my with my research is really to get people to read Kafka closely, to look not just at the big themes, the big questions, but to really get stuck into the texts and look out for maybe more unexpected turns, maybe more like, you know, the details of language and formulation and images, even down to individual words. So I often drive my students mad by just saying, you have to look for the little words, but you know, it's not just about the nouns, it's about the adjectives and what mode the verb is in and the prepositions and things like that, even the commas. Kafka used punctuation almost like in a musical score. He didn't use it according to the rules of German grammar, but more to kind of indicate the rhythm or the flow of his texts. Yeah. And how does that come across in translations from your experience? So translation is, of course, a huge issue. And I should say that I've got great respect for translators, because I think it's all easy to say that's not a very good translation. Why did they render this word in that way? But then, of course, when you start translating yourself or thinking about it, you quickly realize how it is an impossible task, of course. So, you know, whole books have been written about translations of Kafka. It's a very interesting subject in its own right. So we start off with the Muirs, who were Kafka's first English translators and took quite a few liberties with his texts. Whereas nowadays, we've got a whole range of approaches. Some translators are very literal and really try to render the sort of bureaucratic dryness of Kafka style, because Kafka is not a very sort of dramatic writer who uses a lot of flourish. He's very sort of, you know, He's a lawyer, basically, and he writes like a lawyer, even when he's writing fiction. And then other people like Susan Bonofsky, who recently retranslated The Metamorphosis, she modernizes the text quite a lot and sometimes makes it a lot more casual than it maybe is in German. But then when you read it, you also realize that, yes, there is also some justification in updating Kafka. I mean, I think you always have to strike a balance between faithfulness and kind of bringing him into our own time. But I think, yeah, it's basically there's a whole range of approaches and I don't think you can say that any one of them is the correct one. Thank you. Now, we, we actually, to go back to part of your answer to Erica, you were talking about the openness of his text. And we were interested in the way that your work highlights the fluidity of his stories. You consider his marginal writings and references to other texts and to other mediums, including photography. If you're speaking to us as readers of Kafka, how should that influence and inform our readings of The Metamorphosis? So, of course, The Metamorphosis is finished unlike many of Kafka's texts, unlike the novels, for instance, and it was published, you know, so Kafka read the proofs. And so in a sense, you do have a much more coherent text than you do in the case of many other of his novels and short stories. But I think once you start looking around the text and looking, for instance, at Kafka's letters and diaries, but also looking across his work, you can find, let's say, you know, earlier versions or kind of um, the nucleus of this story in, in earlier writings. So, for example, one of his 
earliest stories is called Wedding Preparations in the Country. And there you've got a protagonist who has to go to a wedding and basically doesn't want to. In fact, no, he has to get married himself and he doesn't want to. And at the beginning of the story, we find him lying in bed and imagining that he could turn himself into a beetle and could just stay at home and send what is called his clothed self to the wedding instead. So it's very interesting, I think, how Kafka already, about a decade earlier, comes up with that, this idea of a man and a beetle. But here, of course, you don't have the man being turned into a beetle, but the beetle being a sort of doppelganger who gets who gets to stay in bed. You could say almost the sort of the sort of animal instinct of not wanting to follow your social obligation, like the Freudian id, who stays in bed while the the sort of husk of the clothed self gets sent off into the world and into society. So there, the beetle is basically a wish fulfillment. And I think that's very important to bear in mind when you then read the metamorphosis, because, of course, the core question with that text is, is it a punishment or is it a form of liberation, his transformation? And very clearly, I think you have to say it's both. And it also changes over the course of the text. But I think the text shows precisely that ambiguity. And with that earlier story in mind, you can really see that this is the core idea. The core idea is not punishment. It's not the sort of fairy tale idea of being bewitched and turned into a beast. It's the sense that the animal actually has more freedom than us humans. Yeah. So... Given what you've been saying about the influence of Kafka's work, I mean, the fact that he has an adjective uh, named after him, you clearly believe in his, his influence in the World Republic of Letters. What about the metamorphosis specifically? Is this one of the books of the century, of the 20th century in your mind? Would you pick this work out of Kafka's body of work? It's a good question. So I do think it's probably Kafka's most iconic work. And I think it is a text whose premise is so simple that, of course, it has sparked a huge amount of, you know, like reception, imitation, parody, adaptation. So, for instance, there's uh, Franz Kafka, It's a Wonderful Life. Um, I don't know if you know that film by the... Scottish actor and filmmaker Peter Capaldi. Mm -hmm. It's a sort of it's a sort of pun on Frank Capra. It's a wonderful life. Yeah. So it kind of starts off with Kafka sitting in the kitchen having writer's block and sort of thinking about what could Gregor Samsa be turned into? A crocodile, an elephant. I can't remember, <laughs> but it's basically a sort of a sort of. He's basically riffing on this idea of Kafka writing the metamorphosis and then all sorts of weird things happen. Well, I recently took part in a radio program where they had a reading by, I think, a Nigerian writer who had written a novel about a black man who wakes up one morning and um, is a white man. So, of course, this idea of transformation is an age-old trope. We find it in mythology, of course. We find it in fairy tales. It's a very simple, very powerful, very recognizable idea. And Kafka, I think, uses it very effectively and brings it into the modern age very effectively. Of course, the beetle has all sorts of 
associations of dirt, of the parasite, the vermin. If you want to read this through a sort of cultural historical lens, you can think about anti-Semitism, you can think about masculinity, of course, you can think about Freud, you know, objection, all of these kind of really interesting ideas that seem to come together in this choice of, of the animal that Kafka depicts here. I think sort of on the other side, thinking about whether this is the text I would pick, it's certainly not actually a text that's very typical of what Kafka writes in general. So generally speaking, Kafka isn't really a kind of surrealist writer. So he doesn't really normally write gothic or fantastical works, but he tends to stay much closer to realism. So of course he is a modernist, but in terms of the plots and in terms of how he describes the world, and of course this is true of the metamorphosis as well, it's actually a very realist sort of descriptive style of writing. And so in that sense, I think maybe if people read the metamorphosis first, they'll actually be rather surprised if they read some of Kafka's other works. Although, of course, then again, you know, certain themes like the family, power, judgment, punishment, of course, all of those are there in this work and they really like permeate across his writings. Well, that's fantastic. That's a wonderfully rich answer. Thank you. Thank you so much. We're very grateful that you made the time amidst the busyness of everything. No, no, it's been a pleasure. So, Erica, it has come to that time in the show, and I would like to know whether you believe that this work belongs on a list of the books of the century. I don't know. I've thought about this, and I haven't come up with a clear answer. It looms large. Kafka has been incredibly influential on many writers, from Borges to Gabriel Garcia Marquez, to Albert Camus, to J.M. Coutier. <laughs> and he is cited as one of the most influential writers of the 20th century. So in that sense, I think, like, could we have a books of the 20th century without Kafka? I don't know. Metamorphosis is a, it's a good read, and it's a fulfilling read, and it's challenging in some ways and funny in others, and sad and still others. I don't know if I love it. <laughs> I guess that's the thing I'm, I kept asking myself. Mm. Do I love this? Do I need to love it for it to go on the books of the century list? I don't think I do need to love it. But what should a books of the century list have on it? I guess that's the question. Mm. I feel like I felt more strongly with our previous books one way or the other. And I could see the arguments for this in terms of its influence. It's sitting in a particular place in the 20th century. It sort of prefigures a lot of the absurdism and surrealism and questioning of Western society and European society. Kafka himself was a German-speaking Czech Jewish person whose family, after he died, died in, in the Holocaust. He's He's in a particular kind of position and had a particular kind of experience of the world that I think is 
emblematic of a number of the things that happen in the 20th century and the kinds of questions that get raised in, in historical events of the 20th century. Questions of kind of marginalization and discrimination and oppression. And he certainly understood what the tyranny of bureaucracy is all about. Mm. This is all to say, I see why he is included on a list like this. And for me, I'm not sure. I don't know. What about you? What's your sense? I too found it, find it slightly odd as a as a work. And I think that's part of its merits and its aim. And it's been lauded by people who are much more astute readers than I am, which is slightly humbling. I do think something by Kafka belongs on the list. And one of the questions for me was then, should it be this piece? And I think that the castle feels more Kafka-esque and labyrinthine. The trial is probably the one I would put on the list. And I haven't read enough Kafka to really speak to it. But even like America, that mm -hmm. was more emotionally engaging to speak to the concern about like, or the question about loving it or that sort of affective response. Mm. The hunger artist, I mean, we talked about the questions about animality and also about food and dietary choices and maybe the politics of that. I don't know. I think that probably to properly answer the question, I'd want to go back and compare it to those other works and to read people who are better readers right. than I am about it. But my gut instinct is that I would prefer something like The Trial on the list. Yeah. It's hard for me to know, because I live post-Kafka, it's hard for me to know yeah. what was possible in literature before him and what was impossible. There's that quotation from Marquez who said, I didn't know that it was possible to write like this, that this could be what literature is. Yeah. And one of the reasons I find Kafka attractive is that I find him intellectually engaging. And I really like when literature teaches me to read differently and to think differently about life because it mm. just feels so easy to end up being Gregor Samsa's family member who just blithely goes through not realizing, you know, oh, you know, this or that's happening. And one of the things I love about literature is utilitarian, probably too utilitarian, but it's connected to the aesthetics and the way that that changes my view of everything else. No, but I agree. Like, that's what literature can do. Here we are at the end of a conversation that may or may not have been transformative. Before we scuttle off, we'd like to thank Mark Harmon and Carolyn Duttlinger for talking to us for this episode, and Francisca Kolt for her translation and reading at the start. All original music was, once again, made by Erica Lombard. Thank you, Erica. On the next episode in two weeks' time, we'll be reading The Wild Swans at Cool by W.B. Yeats. Want to read along? Please do. We'd also love to hear from you. Please get in touch with your thoughts on the book or this episode. You can read more about the podcast on literatepodcast.com or find us on Twitter at literatepodcast is our handle. Email us at literatepodcast at gmail.com. We want to hear from you. We absolutely do. And if you like this episode, please rate, review, and subscribe and tell your friends about it. And please support your local library and independent bookshop. <laughs>